Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright connects on a call with Dropkick Murphy's founder, Ken Casey, to learn about their new album, released September 30th via the band's label, Dummy Luck Music, This Machine Still Kills Fascists, in which they bring Woody Guthrie's lyrics to life. This album is like nothing they've done before, and in 10 songs, they've harnessed all their energy to show how powerful an acoustic album can be. Ken shares all about the making of the record, how it was inspired by Woody Guthrie's daughter, Nora, and how the idea had been percolating for more than a decade as Nora curated a collection of her father's never-published lyrics. Ken's an engaging speaker, and we're thrilled to have him on the line. From Diddy TV, this is Insights. I'm so glad we could do this. I know you're busy. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I appreciate your help. Yeah, well, we want to talk about um, this machine still kills fascists, but... One of the things I wanted to do was just to go back before we do that and talk to you a little bit about your life and how you got here and kind of cover some of that stuff. It's really fun for people to know how you got where, you're, where you are. And, sure. uh, and I, I love this project, by the way. It was very cool to go down the rabbit hole. And I know it's Woody Guthrie and um, just a very, very cool project. So we want to explore that. And, you know, I want to hear how that happened and... All that kind of fun stuff. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, So you grew up in Massachusetts, right? Outside of Boston, or was it rural Massachusetts, or was it near the city? No, about about a quarter of a mile outside Boston city limits, so pretty pretty close to the city. (laughs) So were you, um, when you were growing up, then um, uh, you're of Irish descent, of course. Uh, And was Irish music a big part of your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, most everybody in my life's parents, grandparents or great grandparents were from Ireland. And there was, you know, so every event, a party, a household that was kind of revolved around, you know, with the matriarchs or patriarchs still being around, it was revolved around Irish culture, Irish music. A lot of my friends' parents played Irish music. Um, so I knew all those songs and everything. I don't even, you know, almost by osmosis, you know, I don't even know that I thought they were my music so much as just almost the background to life. And um, then when I set out to find my own musical tastes, you know, and rock, you know, ACDC, The Stones, and then punk rock and stuff, um, Uh, I kind of the appreciation grew back on me of like how cool a lot of that folk music was and the storytelling aspect of it. And um, yeah, I think later in my teens, I became more proud of uh, my, my knowledge of and roots in Irish music. Well, of course, Irish music also lent itself to bluegrass and um, there's punk bluegrass and there's, uh, you know, there's Celtic punk, which is which is what you what you do, and um, it's really pretty amazing. Like the the instruments that these guys played and how fast they had to play, um, and Irish music was at the heart of all that. Absolutely, I mean, we've been asked since you know this album started. Was it 
was it a big departure to do something in a more Americana flavor or whatever? And I said, well, it's the same instruments, really. You know what I mean? Uh, except the switch from electric guitars to acoustic guitars, but everything else, the banjos, accordions, mandolins, you know, um, maybe we switched from a tin whistle to a harmonica. And But other than that, it's, they're, they're definitely cousins for sure, you know, the musical styles. So when you were growing up, were you a Celtics, Patriots, Red Sox fan? Oh, of course. Bruins. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, kind of similar to Irish music. You were, uh, you were exposed to it and you were, <laughs> you better, you're going to be around it. So you better like it. And, uh, but yeah, a huge, huge fan of all those sports teams, you know, growing up in the eighties in Boston, the Boston Celtics with Larry Bird were, you know, uh, very successful and the Bruins never won in my, um, you know, since I was really, really little, but um, they were always very competitive. And the Bruins really carried the um, image of the city, kind of, I thought, you know, very kind of working class, hard nosed. We didn't have a lot of fancy stars, but we were we were gritty. And, um, and then, of course, the Red Sox were just such a summertime family kind of, you know, you just, Fenway Park, I mean, it was just, man, that, you know, that was like the soundtrack to your summer, the, 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 you know, the announces and baseball on the radio, baseball on TV. It's just a huge part of our upbringing here. Memphis is a little bit of a gritty city as well. <laughs> yeah, we have, I like we have the Grizzlies here and we call it grit and grind. So uh, got a little bit of that in common. And so did you play sports then as a kid? Of course. Yeah, of course. Yep. And, uh, yeah, baseball, uh, basket, baseball, and basketball were more my. Um, my I was raised by uh, just it was just me and my mother, and she was always working. So hockey, I played a lot of pickup hockey, but uh, hockey was a big commitment of early mornings and stuff that you know were tough for people who uh, you know didn't you know didn't have a the family structure to be able to do it, but. Um, you know, but I was definitely played a lot of sports and organized sports until about high school when I became a um, chronic truant and I could really, more, I was really only allowed to play more pickup sports then. But, uh, you know, if you were looking for me, I was, uh, I was down, down the park at the local basketball court, see the playing basketball, uh, doing other things on the basketball court. So when did you pick up the bass? Uh, well, the band in general started. Um, I was working. I was bartending and uh, going to college uh, in you know my early early twenties. And the kid that I worked with, um, and I was very involved with like the the punk scene. Our, our famous club here was called the Rat. It was like Boston's version of CBGBs. And I, I, I booked a lot of shows there and just was like involved in the scene and never had a band. And I was talking about starting a band, not to be a real band, but just to like play covers in the basement or whatever. And a kid that I bartended with went to Berkeley School of Music here and he said, you're always talking about starting a band. I dare you to put a band together and open for my band. And that was in three weeks time. And I, I always love a good challenge. And I said, you got to bet. So I wrote three songs uh, and then learned three cover songs 
um, and made a six song set. I had the notes taped on the back of my bass so I could kind of paint by numbers. And um, we, we played the six songs uh, twice in the set to, to make uh, <laughs> the fill our half hour set. And I won the bet and it was fun. And um, we decided to keep doing it. And, you know, one of those three songs is called Barroom Hero. It's probably one of our more popular songs to this day. So like it proves that you don't need to know what you're doing to, to you know, do something that people like. Um, and then, you know, then things started happening so fast with the touring that I never really got to truly learn an instrument from, you know, from um, the perspective of um, theory or any of that stuff. So for a while, I still had the notes taped on the back and, you know, I'd be taking the stage and, you know, the, the, the road crew, you know, people who work at a venue would see that the notes on the back and they'd be like, what the fuck? This kid still has the notes taped on the back of his instrument. And, and instead of being like embarrassed by it, I took pride in it. I'm like, Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing, but all I know is people are coming to see us. So I can't be that bad. Yeah. So and, up yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So eventually, uh, wouldn't say I ever really figured out what I was doing, but um, eventually I got a little better. <laughs> so literally that first gig was the first time you really played the bass? Yeah, yeah. That's oh, crazy. I had, I had about a solid week of rehearsing before <laughs> that. <laughs> well, okay, so you when did you actually, was that the beginning of the Dropkick Murphys? And, and, and did you have a name for the band already or was it something else at the time? No, that was Dropkick Murphys, and that was 1996, and we got the name from, it was an old dry-out spot uh, and um, in the 50s that it was actually, there was a guy, John Dropkick Murphy, his nickname was Dropkick, and he had a, like a camp where he trained boxes and wrestlers and stuff back in the 50s, and um, half the time before their fight came, they'd end up being drunk. And he, he started to experiment with primitive methods of detoxing people, like with uh, peraldehyde and horse tranquilizers. And, um, and it was a very archaic methods, but he, he became, so you'd hear like, um, I don't know, I would hear my grandfather or old timers, you know, talk about, oh, he went to drop kicks and, I was like, what the hell is that? And that's pretty, kind of a cool name. And so that's where we got the band name from. And ironically, Dropkick's son, who's now in his probably late 70s, early 80s, he's he's come to the shows for years and got a big kick out of the fact that, you know, we kept his father's legacy uh, alive through, through the band, you know. So whose idea was it to play Celtic punk? It just evolved that way or... Did you set out to be a punk band? Oh, we set out to be a punk band, but our influences are so strong. Like that first song I talked about, Barroom Hero, even though it has a very Ramonesy kind of riff or music to it, it's it was I think like in the delivery and the rapid fire lyrics and the storytelling kind of approach was very much influenced by Celtic music right off the bat. And then um, you know we had some friends that weren't willing to tour or anything, but they were, they played bagpipes and things like that. So we had added a little bit of that stuff to our album for flavor. And then eventually we started out as a four piece and uh, 
it's kind of like if you build it, they will come. You know, you start playing that type of music and then a younger generation picks up those instruments. And sometimes kids would come to our show when we were a four piece and a kid would be like, I have a mandolin and I know all your songs. And we'd be like, well, get on stage. <laughs> um, you know, so it kind of grew in that manner, you know. So now we're a seven piece. and uh, But, you know, all the extra instrumentation just allows for a lot more melody and allows us to do a lot of other things and fun things like uh, like this project, you know. Well, and you guys have an incredibly loyal fan base. So what do you attribute that loyalty to? Um, you know, in 1996, when we started, you know, we would press our own singles, seven-inch singles. We would release all our own music. Um, when someone mail-ordered for a single, we'd, um, you know, had a handwritten catalog. We'd print our own T-shirts. We'd write letters back to everyone that wrote. It was such a grassroots, slow-growing you know, thing that those original fans stuck with us for life because, you know, it was just, it wasn't like some big music machine. It was a, it was like a small family business as a comparison, you know, and, um, and they've just really stuck with us, you know, and now years later, you you know, our, those teenage kids are now bringing their own young kids, you know, and, um, I mean, obviously not to say we got every fan in those days from that era, but that stayed the mentality of it, even though now nowadays it's social media and everything. But I think that if, I mean, obviously some people just listen to Dropkick Murphys because they like a song or two or whatever, but other people get into it because they realize that our heart and soul is into it. You know what I mean? And that we care about the people who listen to the band. And they they sense that and they believe that and they keep coming back because of that. Even if, you know, maybe, you know, may, I'm sure there's people out there that would prefer Dropkicks released another heavy electric album. But they'll probably support this and check it out because they're passionate about what we're passionate about. So was there from the beginning, was there a message to your music that you felt real, was really important to you? Or when you wrote your songs, was was it there was an underlying message, or was it more just about whatever you what was going on at the time? Um, I think it was a lot about we were a lot of especially our early songs are documenting some of our family history and our own experiences in Boston, and those happened to be, you know the immigrant struggle, right? Coming to mm-hmm. America and making a new life and like, like, uh, you know, my grandparents and stuff and, and, and fighting for, you know, to get ahead in the world and, you know, go from uh, poor immigrants to middle-class Americans. And, and the path to that for, for people in my family was through uh, unions and organized labor. And so that was, something we sang a lot about our first album, our very first full length was called do or die. And it was about, you know, kind of the plight of the working class. And, um, and, I, and, and, and then throughout the years, I think there's been a lot of message of just social observations and social justice. And, um, you know, basically though, I feel like, you know, kind of the message and the music is on behalf of, uh, 
you know, working people and the common, common person. And, you know, not everyone agrees with what we have to say, but we're passionate about what we say. And what we say is what we were taught to believe and how we were raised. And that's what it is. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But at least know that it comes from, comes from here, you know? So when were you signed to a label? Uh, I think like late 1997, we were signed to a label and, um, yeah, but it was an independent label, Epitaph Records, which is, you know, the, the one of the bigger in, uh, independents, but yeah, we always stayed kind of controlling our own musical de- destiny, knowing that it was great to be on an independent, an independent label like that. Cause they never said you should do this. You should do that. They just said. Oh, you got a record? Great. <laughs> Send it. We'll put it out. We often used to joke. I don't even think they listened to it before they put it out, you know. Um, but it's nice to have that musical autonomy. And um, and then, you know, now we're back on our own. La- we've been back on our own label with, you know, with obviously big distribution. But um, I like control. I think it's best for our own destiny. Because as we go back. There's nothing worse than listening to a band blame their manager or their record label. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, now you get no one else to blame. So that's the way it should be. Well, I was looking at your career and I thought, I'm not even sure they needed a label because you did all of this organic building of fans and you already had it going on before you were signed to a label. So um, probably being uh, in an independent label was probably the the best call, but just ca- kind of being in control of your own destiny now seems like that's where you would want to be just because um, you seem like a band that doesn't really need a label. Well, you know, I, I, I often make this analogy when people ask that don't really know music, they'll say, well, like, oh, you know, how come you never like got signed to a big label? And I said, well, like, you know, in the nineties or early two thousands, when we were a band starting out as a band, um, you know, make the analogy of like everyone wanted to be on the highway. They wanted to be on the main road, the highway, signed to a big label and on the radio. And we were just cruising along on that little route, route 1A, you know, but that runs parallel to the highway. And we were so happy to be there, touring at our own pace, releasing records at our own pace. What, what they will call now direct marketing to your fans, which we used to just call like, answering your own fan mail and knowing your fans and talking to them. And, um, and that was just the norm. We didn't want to be on the highway, nor did the highway want us, you know? Um, but now everyone wants to be on one a cutting, trimming the fat, you know, direct marketing to their fans. And I said, shit, this is how we've done it all along, you know? And, um, that is the way of the future, you know, for, for that is how what people strive for now um so it's it's been great to us it's a little more crowded over here on 1a than it used to be but uh that's all right there's room for everybody i was gonna say you figured it out early because when napster happened in the early 2000s and you know the music business was sort of upended then artists really had to start marketing more directly like you're saying but you had already been doing it for so long that it wasn't really a change for you guys. Um, and you know, your, your lineup has changed a few times throughout the years. And how do you keep the band together when you have different players? How do you kind of keep that same sort of energy level? Yeah. So there's always been this kind of 
overarching theme of like love it or leave it, you know. So like, mm-hmm. I think a band gets taken down when they think one member is too important. So they'll like if if that member is important but not into it or becomes a cancer, you know, you'll settle. And we've always just had this love it or leave it, you know, thing. And we've had a lot of members come and go usually because you know of marriage, of finance. We've only had one one member we don't really see eye to eye with, you know, in the world today. Everyone else, you know, we're all good friends still and everyone's close and they just kind of were at different points of their life. And you realize that I always say, like, what we're about and what we're creating is bigger than any one individual. It's like a team, you know, when one person goes down, another person steps up and fills in the role. And I think that the atmosphere that we create in a live show and the music that we create uh, is what's most important. Well, and you guys have these amazing fans and your songs have been featured in movies. You have a song called Tessie that was featured in Fever Pitch. It was an old Boston Red Sox uh, anthem. What was it like to see your music featured in a movie like that? Well, the, the song Tessie, actually, the, the highlight of that wasn't per se the movie as it was, um, you know, that 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 song was actually an old Broadway song that the original ardent fan base of the uh, Red Sox, they were called the Royal Rooters, mostly Irish immigrants uh, who were just diehard fans and like... Um, John L. Sullivan, who at the time was the world heavyweight bare knuckle boxing champion, he was one of them. Honey Fitz was the mayor of Boston at the time, and he's also JFK's grandfather. And so these guys and all their cronies uh, would go to the games and be down on the sidelines, and they'd sing, they'd yell through bullhorns and bang on bass drums. So they were really the original fanatic fans, you know. And they took this song, Tessie, which was a popular melody at the time, and they would change the lyrics every game to sing it shitting on the opposing team's pitcher or whoever. So um, that song became like the good luck song for Boston baseball, and they won a bunch of World Series in the early part of the century. Then they traded Babe Ruth. Those fans turned their back on the team. And they never won a World Series again. So in the summer of 2004, the Red Sox came to us and said, would you recreate this song? So we took the melody and wrote the words to be about that kind of golden age of the Royal Rooters and the Red Sox. And we debuted the song on the field on July 24th, 2004. In the newspaper, the day before, in the Boston Herald, I said, I guarantee a World Series. This will bring the luck back. And lo and behold, it, it did. And, um, you know, it led to us playing on the field a bunch of times before games. And I got to be on the field and in St. Louis when we won our first World Series in 86 years. And I got to call my 86-year-old grandfather from the field in St. Louis. And it was the most emotional, spiritual thing that's ever happened to me. Calling a guy that has won, waited his whole entire life to see this and tell him that I was on the field was just nothing will ever top that for me in, in music, you know? 
Oh, that's incredible. That had to be such a poignant moment. Um, and I know that Boston is, is a huge part of your history, the band's history. I mean, what is just sort of being from Boston and having that great um, city backing you? What does that mean? I think Bostonians have always said, and it might, it might come from being like close to New York in proximity. We've always had that like uh, chip on our shoulder, like, uh, you know, maybe like the look, the, the scrappy younger brother feels or something like that, you know, um, but it's just a close knit community. And, um, you know, I feel like if you can make it, I know they, I know the song says it about New York, but I feel like if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And, um, and, and I also always have to give credit when someone asks a question like this to the Boston music scene. when we were starting out in the mid nineties, that club, the rat that gave us our chance to be able to develop a fan base and how popular the, the Boston scene in general was because the way we started the tour is you had bands like Dropkick Murphys, the Showcase Showdown, the Unseen, the Ducky Boys, the Trouble, all of us, we could all sell out the rat on our own, which is incredible for unsigned local bands to be able to draw 700 people on a Saturday afternoon. So what, what all us bands would do is we'd book a Saturday afternoon matinee, we'd headline, we'd invite a band from New York, a band from Philadelphia, a band from Chicago, a band from Washington, D.C. And, and, on one, and, and those bands would come and play to a massive, enthusiastic crowd. And, of course, they'd all owe Dropkick Murphys a show in their city. And that's how we started the tour. And when we'd come to, just say, Washington, D.C., we weren't big there. But that Washington local band would be saying the Boston scene was so good we got to do everything we can to pack the place out so we don't look bad in our scene. So I, I always credit the strength of the Boston punk rock scene to really being part of partly responsible for how we were able to get out and start to tour. That's actually really a smart way to go about it. I mean, that's incredible because you're right. When you go to these other cities, um, you're tapping into their fan base, and so it's a tit for tat a bit. And of course, the punk scene in general, and DC was a big punk scene, um, you know, had a loyal fan base, and it was a real strong live music scene. So you yeah, had that. There was a sense of community in that world, like there wasn't, in, you know, and there was a pride in your own scene, but not in a confrontational way. It was like, my scene's better than yours, but ultimately, you know, we're all in this together. So everyone was so helpful in those early days to a band that was trying to get out and travel and tour. So kind of fast forward and you guys have been putting out charting albums all the way through. What kind of keeps you motivated and how do you um, attribute the success you've had from that perspective? Because, you know, it's hard for bands to keep doing that and you, and you do. Well, we don't keep a schedule in terms of like, it's time to make a record we make a record when that feeling of urgency is there and it's different things during the pandemic. Our last album, turn up that dial. We were trapped in the house and we wanted to make a positive record that would make people feel like they could sing along and be at a party, even if they were alone in their house, you know? And so we tapped 
the memories of like music and how much it played a role in our lives and what a positive experience it's been. So that was the motivation for that. You know, um, the record before that, the inspiration was, um, you know, was not a good inspiration, but the opiate, uh, opioid epidemic and how many people had, um, you know, passed away in our lives and how many funerals we've been to. And it just inspired me to write like two or three songs that were pertaining to that matter. And that led to the creation of an album. So there's always something that inspires us. And, and today, you know, doing the Woody Guthrie album, this project has been in the works for 20 years since we very first went to the Guthrie archives and the motivation to do it now is, you know, the state of state of the country and the state of the world and the division. And um, so, you know, there's always something that, that is inspiring us. We've never made an album. That's just like, Hey, I want to make an album. Sure. You know, this, <laughs> I, I think that's probably when albums with no passion happen, you know, Let's talk about the new album, This Machine Still Kills Fascists. So tell me how this album came about, because it is Woody Guthrie songs, and, and it's, it's a phenomenal album. I had so Thank much you. fun listening to it. Um, but tell me the background and, and how it kind of came about. Like you said, it took a while. Sure. So we were first invited down to the archives, and Woody has hundreds and hundreds of lyrics that have never been recorded or never been even put to music. He just never... He wrote the words and that's all anyone was left to know of them. And if the family, um, you know, Nora Guthrie, Woody's daughter is in charge of the archives. And if the family kind of deems you worthy or appreciates you or your music, they'll sometimes invite people down to look through the archives. And we got that opportunity about 20 years ago. And um, we've recorded a few songs that have gone on to our albums too. And um, and we've always talked about doing a full record and just now seem like the time because um, a lot of the things that Woody spoke up against and fought against are all coming full circle. If you want to talk about maybe not the most obvious, but, you know, Woody comes from, you know, Oklahoma, where with all the uh, mining for oil and the dust that created the Dust Bowl and, and his whole his whole area became migrants to change in climate. You know what I mean? Because um, they couldn't live this. So here you have the world now with fires and floods and water running out. I mean, you know, I don't think we're probably all that far off by see, seeing migration within our own country because of heat or fire or whatever um and then most obvious in this day and age would be um you know the world's uh or the country's uh slide towards uh you know author off uh uh i i always forget how to pronounce this word authoritarian uh sympathies and uh as joe biden just said semi-fascist you know um <laughs> but you know that that's the playbook you know uh turn the press into the enemy um you know divide people um so there's a lot of that going on and 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 you know corporate greed was another thing that woody you know was always singing about and you know if you look in the last few years over the pandemic you know what i mean uh a lot of the world a lot of the countries struggled 
but Jeff Bezos is, is, is building rockets to go to the moon because he has so much money. But God forbid he lets his uh, warehouse workers unionize and fight for a better, better you know, fair pay. If he, if he gave one percent of all that extra money he's made in the last three years, he could probably, you know, give all his workers a substantial raise. Um, and those workers would then in turn feed the economy more. You look at Starbucks, you know, uh, who, who has profited to a, to a, to a level that, that they've never seen before. You know, if they just shared a little bit of that with their workers and allowed them to unionize instead of trying to break the backs of those people unionizing. So these are new frontiers for, for people to have to, you know, uh, organize and fight for their rights that, you know, people didn't traditionally think of um, unions being needed. Um, so, you know, it's times where it's times where Woody would have been singing loud and, and writing a lot of songs. So we're happy to uh, carry on in his uh, stead. And I bet you most, you know, 90% of all artists would say, boy, I'd, w- one of the things I'd love most to think that my, words of the music would would be relevant a century later but i bet in this instance he wishes they weren't quite so relevant you know well and nora guthrie said that you're a master at understanding her father's lyrics um why would you say that is i think because she thinks i'm I'm a little bit crazy (laughs) (laughs) you almost have to be and you also have to have horrible penmanship to understand the horrible penmanship of another human being. And I, and I can figure, because a lot of times when you look to go through the archives, sometimes Woody had lyrics typed out very neat. And sometimes, you know, he was probably, some of the papers I took, you look like he was writing them on his knee in the dock on a, on a boxcar going across the country or something. So it would take me weeks to solve the puzzle of what the hell is that word there? And that was, that was actually a lot of the fun of it. But, um, I found that to be a um, huge compliment. I took that as a, I usually try to downplay a lot of compliments in life. Um, you know, that's generally what people with low self-esteem do. But um, on that one, I was like proud to take that compliment because I think it means that, you know, I, under, I understand and I'm passionate about what he was writing about. Didn't you actually, wasn't it shipping it up to Boston that, was based on a, a, a part of a Woody Guthrie lyric that you wrote a while back? It wasn't part. We already had the song written, but it was just there and it didn't repeat or anything. It was it was a partial lyric, but we turned that into the only lyric in the song. Um, but here, here I was going through these pages and pages. And by the way, holding the actual pages that he wrote on, which was just an incredible feeling. These songs were written in the thirties, forties, early fifties. Wow. And, and I, and I turn and I see this one, I'm shipping up to Boston to find my wooden leg. And there was only a few lines and we kind of massaged them a little bit and repeated things, but it fit into a song that we had. And I said, like, this is destiny. This, uh, we very rarely write the music to songs first. So here we had this finished complete musical song. We loved the riff. We liked the, the music we just needed words and i never would have thought on my own to write such to write a lyric over that song that was so spacious do you know what i mean that that left so much empty space we like to fill every bit of space <laughs> and then the lyric just said that's the lyric for that song and i would argue that you know if i had if i had written 
uh, a fuller lyric to that song, it would have it wouldn't have captured the magic, you know. So, do you know Billy Bragg? Of course, I know Billy Bragg. I interviewed him, and he did a kind of a similar project uh, where he was working with you know Woody Guthrie's lyrics. I thought, hmm, you guys must know each other. Yeah, no, think. he's. Uh, he carries on, to me, he carries on the spirit of Woody Guthrie better than anyone in modern times, you know, because, um, you know, as a, he's just he's just done a great job of always advocating for workers' rights. And, uh, you know, and, and Billy Bragg and Wilco did an amazing job on um, the Mermaid Ave sessions that they did of Guthrie lyrics, which was a similar thing. It was the same thing, taking unpublished lyrics and writing music to them. What I would say is that we're taking, I think we have a better chance with our audience of taking Guthrie's legacy to people who have never heard it before because Bragg and Wilco are more folkies than we are. So I think we'll turn some people on to, um, you know, to music that they ordinarily wouldn't have gravitated to. And we also tour to the farther corners of the world than those people do. We go to Japan, we go to South America. I've done a lot of uh, interviews to those countries already, and they'd say, here, we know nothing of Woody Guthrie. Tell us about it. Mm. It's, it's kind of special to do that when you're, you're not pontificating on something people already know. You're telling someone about someone they've never heard of. You know, telling them about someone that, you know, most Americans considered a national treasure, you know. And where did you record it? Because I know it was in it was in Oklahoma, wasn't it? Near Woody Guthrie's uh, archives and correct. It was at the Church Studio, Leon Russell's place, uh, and it was an amazing, unbelievable sound in the room. Um, you know, and I think we needed a big, big sound with a big room sound to be able to pull off an album with no amplifiers and still make it sound kind of ballsy. Um, and yeah, the archives are right down the street. So most mornings we start off by kind of getting a coffee and cruising through and it wasn't even open yet, but they just kind of let us in and get inspired. And then one day we even drove down an hour south to Woody's uh, hometown where he was born, which is Okima, Oklahoma. And you really got that small town Oklahoma vibe and the main street of Okima, you know, maybe, you know, a third of the stores are open. The rest are all just boarded up storefronts and you got to just see, feel that like, you know, struggles real and in, in middle America too, for some, some, some people. And, um, it just inspired us. And I think it really, you know, getting to see where, where it all started for him was really inspirational. I remember like, as a kid and you hear like, Oh yeah, the clash went to Jamaica to record. And I'm like, ah, they just wanted a trip to Jamaica. Do you really need <laughs> to go to Jamaica to have a reggae influence? But now I see the magic, you know what I mean? It just, it gets you, there's something to be said for getting in the spirit of something you're doing, you know? Absolutely. And, and um, who produced the album for you? Uh, Ted Hutt, who is uh, produced probably our last four albums and he's uh you know, he's, he's like a brother. He's me and him share a very similar musical brain. We were great uh, working together and he's great with all my bandmates. And it's just, it's become someone who, um, 
I never thought I'd see a producer that puts as much work into it as the band. And he's someone I feel like we can trust the little detail. As much as he's also a great conduit between ideas for the band members, he's also someone, those little details. And as I used to produce the records and just, it would take away my creativity because, you know, just the, the caretaking of the whole project. Ah, shit, did we get that down yet? How many, you know, we got to do another solo here and then that and just, you know, the checklist of it all. It's nice to be able to know that Ted has that. We can just try to do the best that where our strengths are in the band. And uh, I think it's been a, a great formula for us not burning out, you know what I mean, to come in and have a guy that, is so helpful in a project with everything from making sure the studio's booked to the mastering's booked and everything in the middle, you know, and the, and the ideas. And yeah. I haven't checked out any of Ted Hutt's work. You, uh, you should, he has a Grammy with an old pro medicine show record and uh, he's awesome. Let's talk about a couple of songs on the album. Let's talk about digging a hole. So what's, what made um, this song so special on the album? So that's the only one on the album that isn't, you know, an unpublished lyric, clearly, because Woody Guthrie is actually recorded and on the song. So uh, that was a rare, that's a rare recording of him at the Library of Congress. So, you know, way back when they already knew how important Woody Guthrie would be in, you know, American history. So they had him come record uh, for the archives at the Library of Congress. And we took this old recording and said, wouldn't it be great to put a backing band with Woody? So we, we, uh, we, we you know, recorded the backing tracks and Woody's grandson, Cole, actually plays dobro guitar on it. And then we dropped me in on the choruses and in the second verse. So I'm essentially doing a duet with Woody and, um, you know, treated my vocals to sound like a, it was real old timey. And, um, you know, then when we we're in doing backup vocals together and there's like 10 of us in the room around a mic and, I, you know, as we're singing, I'm out of the corner of my eye, I'm seeing Woody's grandson, Cole, singing with me. And it was just what a perfect way for us to end the album and for the whole thing to come full circle. You know, here's the grandson of the man. He never met the man because he was dead before he was born. And he's the one that introduced the family to dropkick murphy's and he's on this song with us and yeah it was you know it it was up there with uh with with the goosebump factor it was right up there mm. with calling my grandfather from the field in st louis you know that really is that's really incredible it's incredible that woody guthrie um that you had this access to this recording uh, that that's really very special but also to have his grandson on the album that's like you said everything's coming full circle how about yeah. the last one uh tell me about that one that's my favorite song in the record and uh you know we got evan falker from turnpike turnpike troubadours who i'm a big fan of uh to uh guests on the album and i think the duet there could be the the biggest you know, hey have this southern accent and this boston accent going back <laughs> and forth i said this could be one of the biggest contrasts in musical history but i love the lyrics to that song i think that the album uh the, the line how can you worship the rich man that sees poor folks and refuses them to me that sums up everything you know um you know in terms of politics you know 
I think it sums up a huge portion of the country that supports a man who would turn his back on a poor person and, and you know, as I like to say, wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. Mm. Um, but you also have, um, you know, with the rise of this new Christian nationalism where uh, under, under the, the pretense of God, um, you know, we're turning our back on those in need and dividing. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, like if you're going to come under the pretense of God, you know, Jesus himself would never turn on, turn his back on someone who needed him. And, uh, and I also don't believe, uh, Jesus would have tried to build a wall <laughs> at the border, you know? So, uh, you know, everyone's entitled to their politics and their beliefs, but please don't cloak it in something that it shouldn't be involved in if you're going to be like that. So, um, yeah, I just thought that uh, that lyric sums it up because, you know, we want to be all about helping people, not hurting them. And uh, it seems like that's what Woody was about. Exactly. We need to get back to humanity where we care humanity. about it. Remember that? Remember humanity? Yeah. <laughs> I remember humanity. Yeah. Um, well, so before we wrap up, I um, understand that there, there are a number of other songs that aren't even on this album, that there might be another album coming out in 2023. Um, am I correct? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's 10 more already recorded. We're working on the artwork now. Um, we grouped them together because the first record has more of like, and I, I don't mean lyrically, but musically has more of like a darker, minory kind of borderline creepy tone. And, uh, and part two has more of a brighter kind of foot stomping, you know, sing-along vibe. So we kind of grouped them together and in, in, in how they, they felt as, as, a, as, as a pairing. Um, so uh, we're going to release part two in either March of 2023 or maybe wait till next September of 2023. So we're very excited to, uh, you know, here as I'm doing most of the interviews for the new record, we're actually working more intently on part two because we're working on the artwork and whatnot now. So I can't wait for that to come out because I love this one and I know I love the next one. Um, just one last question for you, Ken. Um, what do you think that people today could take away from Woody's lyrics? You sort of alluded to it along the way of this interview, but there's kind of one thing that is a, a takeaway from Woody Guthrie that we can all kind of... Um, take with us throughout our day, what, that, what would that be? Well, one would be getting back to humanity, but two, when the other side doesn't want to uh, show any humanity, um, you got to speak up. You got to be willing to, you know, as the song, uh, the album says, you know, uh, 10 times more, you got to, you got to, you got to be 10 times louder and um, more boisterous than, than, than you would ordinarily be if you want things to change and you want to be heard right well and, and you don't better... have to tell dropkick you don't have to tell dropkick murphy's twice to be 10 times <laughs> 10 times louder or more boisterous so. that's exactly what i was going to say you're the perfect band to get the message out so um it's really been a pleasure talking to you ken i love the new album i wish you the best of luck with it and the new album let us know when that's coming out as well all right, folks, so glad we were able to connect with Ken Casey of legendary Boston band Dropkick Murphys. 
on board to discuss the band's newest album release, This Machine Still Kills Fascists. To learn more about Woody Guthrie, visit woodyguthrie.org. And if you ever get the chance, we highly recommend visiting the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Be sure to check out Dropkick Murphys, too. Listen to the new record and follow their socials to stay up to date with their whereabouts and new releases to come. From Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.